Episode 11. Coming to you live from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. This is CVS. And now here's your host, David Ross. I'm on a real roll here. I'm just going to keep rolling. Documents, the beautiful 16 documents of Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council. It ended in 1965, still very much unexplored, unexamined by most of the laity, even most of the clergy, I would say, don't understand it, haven't read it, haven't taken the time to read the documents. Well worth looking at. I'm just giving you a very rough tour based on my highlights, my notes that I took on my Kindle. And uh, I hope you find it gets you excited about the faith, gets you excited about Vatican II, and you'll buy the book, read the book, uh, the translation of your choice, the 16 documents of Vatican II, read the footnotes. Right now we're going through some of the footnotes. Last time I left off uh, with uh, some of the footnotes and we'll just continue. I think this is the last <clears throat> of the footnotes in this particular section of, of, from the first document. Continuing, the theme of Mary as type of the church developed in this and the following two articles is central to the chapter and partly accounts for the decision of the council to treat Mariology in the constitution on the church. <clears throat> Very significant to treat of Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, within the document on the church, the constitution on the church. Very significant, I think. And we read uh, last time or the time before about uh, Mary and how the church is like unto Mary. Mary is that perfection that the church is striving for here below. Very, very significant. <clears throat> Some of the council fathers wanted to have a separate document about Mary. But that would have seemed to have separated Mary in some way. From the church. She cannot be separated from the church and she cannot be separated from her son, Jesus Christ. Unity, one of the marks of the church, one of the marks, and we are united to Jesus Christ, we're united to the church, and uh, ultimately we're going to partake in the very life of the Trinity. So moving on here, what, where are we? We're in the addenda from the Acts of the Most Holy Ecumenical Council of Vatican this doesn't this doesn't make any sense. How can I be how can I possibly be at the addenda? Okay, well, let's just let's just go through even though it seems bizarre to me, but uh let's see what it says. The question has been raised. What ought to be the theological qualification of the doctrine which is set forth in the schema de ecclesia and is being voted on. The Theological Commission gave the answer to this question when it evaluated the modi or modi pertaining to chapter 3 of de ecclesia in these words. 
As is self-evident, a conciliar text must always be interpreted according to the general rules known by all. On that occasion, the Theological Commission re referred to its own declaration of March 6, 1964. We repeat that text here. In view of conciliar practice and the pastoral purpose of the present council, this sacred synod defines matters of faith or morals as binding on the church only when the synod itself openly declares so. Other matters which the sacred synod proposes as the doctrine of the supreme teaching authority of the church, each and every member of the faithful is obliged to accept and embrace according to the mind of the sacred synod itself, which becomes known either from the subject matter or from the language employed according to the norms of theological interpretation. From a higher authority, there is communicated to the fathers an explanatory and prefatory note on the Modi concerning chapter 3 of the Schema de Ecclesia. The doctrine set forth in the same chapter 3 ought to be interpreted and understood according to the mind and opinion of this note. Prefatory note of explanation. The commission decrees that the following general observations should precede the evaluation of the Modi. Number one, college is not understood in a strictly juridical sense, namely a group of equals who entrust their power to the president, but of a stable group whose structure and authority is to be deduced from revelation. It's supernatural, in other words. Hence, in reply to Modus 12, it is explicitly asserted that of the 12, that the Lord established them in the manner of a college or a stable group. It's a supernatural thing. God himself, the God-man Jesus Christ, established his college as a stable group, but it's not a legal, strictly juridical uh, word. The word college has a special technical meaning for us Christians. For the same reason, the words order or body are also used here and there of the College of Bishops. The parallel between Peter and the other apostles on the one hand and the Supreme Pontiff and the bishops on the other does not imply any transmission of the extraordinary power of the apostles to their successors, nor, as is clear, any equality between the head and the members of the college, but only a proportionality between the first relationship, that is, between Peter and the apostles, and the second relationship, that is to say, the pope and the bishops. Hence, the commission decided to write in number 22, not by the same reason, but by a like reason. A person, continuing now in number two, a person becomes a member of the college by virtue of Episcopal consecration and hierarchical communion with the head of the college and its members. In consecration is given an ontological participation in sacred functions, as is clear beyond doubt from the tradition, even lit liturgical. The word functions is deliberately employed rather than powers, since this latter word would be understood as ready to go into action. But for such ready power to be at hand, it needs canonical or juridical determination by hierarchical authority. This determination of power can consist in the granting of a particular office or in an assigning of subjects. And it is given according to norms provided by the high, approved by the highest authority. Such an ulterior norm is demanded by the nature of the case, since there is in question of functions, since there is question of functions which must be exercised by several subjects working together by Christ's will in a hierarchical manner. It is clear that this communion has been in the life of the church according to the circumstances of the time before it was, so to speak, codified in law. 
Therefore, it is significantly stated that hierarchical communion is required with the head of the church and its members. Communion is an idea which was held in high honor by the, ex, by the ancient church, as it is even today, especially in the East. It is understood, however, not of a certain vague feeling, but of an organic reality which demands a juridical form and is simultaneously animated by charity. Hence, the commission by practically unanimous sent decreed that it must be written in hierarchical communion, and also what is said of canonical omission under Article 24. The, doc the documents of the more recent popes dealing with the jurisdiction of bishops must be interpreted in the light of this nece necessary determination of powers. Number three, of the college which cannot exist without its head, it is said that it is the subject also of supreme and full power over the whole church. This must be allowed of necessity if the fullness of power of the Roman pontiff is not to be jeopardized. For, necess for necessarily and always the college carries with it the idea of its head, who preserves intact in the college his role of vicar of Christ and shepherd of the universal church. In other words, there is no distinction between the Roman pontiff and the bishops taken collectively, but between the Roman pontiff by himself and the Roman pontiff together with the bishops. Since the Supreme Pontiff is the head of the college, he alone can perform certain acts which in no wise belong to the bishops, for example, convoking and directing the college, approving the norms of action, etc. Compare with Modus 81. The care of the whole flock of Christ has been entrusted to the Supreme Pontiff. It belongs to him, according to the changing needs of the Church during the passage of time, to determine the way in which it is fitting for this care to be exercised, whether personally or collegially. The Roman pontiff proceeds according to his own discretion and in view of the welfare of the church in structuring, promoting, and endorsing any exercise of collegiality. Number four, as supreme pastor of the church, the sovereign pontiff can always exercise his authority as he chooses, as is de demanded by his office itself. While the college always exists, it does not, for that reason, permanently operate through strictly collegial action, as the tradition of the church shows. In other words, it is not always in full act. Indeed, it operates through collegial actions only at intervals and only with the consent of its head. The phrase is, with the consent of its head. Or there should be no thought of a dependence on some outside person. The word consent, on the contrary, recalls the communion existing between head and members and implies the necessity of the act which properly belongs to the head. This idea is express, explicitly asserted in Article 22, Section 2, and is, main, and, is in ex, <clears throat> and is explained at the end of the same location. The negative word only takes in every case. Thus, it is evident that the norms approved by the supreme authority must always be observed. In every instance, it is clear that the union of the bishops with their head is contemplated and never any action of the bishops taken independently of the Pope. For in the latter case, the head would be inoperative, and the bishops could not function as a college, as is evident from the very concept of a college. This hierarchical communion of all the bishops with the Supreme Pontiff is undoubtedly a recurring feature of tradition. Note, without hierarchical communion, the sacramental ontological office, as distinct from its canonical juridical aspect, cannot be exercised. I'll say that again. Without hierarchical communion, the sacramental ontological office, as distinct from its canonical juridical aspect, cannot be exercised. The Commission has decided not to go into, the question, into questions of laicity and validity, which are left to the debate of the theologians.
especially with regard to the power which is de facto exercised among the sec separated Easterners and which is explained in various ways. So that by that uh, appendix by the titular Archbishop of Sama, Samosata, and uh, who is also the general or was the general secretary of the most holy second ecumenical council of the Vatican. I have highlighted the footnotes too. Let me see if this, turn this all pink. This excerpt from the Acts of the Council is not an integral part of the Constitution on the Church, but an appendix to the text Constitution, the text of the Constitution as found in the Acta Apostolicae Sedis. It consists of two announcements by the Secretary General of the Council made on the eve of the final vote. These announcement, announcements quote two statements made by the Theological Commission, the Committee of Bishops charged with the drafting of the Constitution on the Church, both of both of great great importance for the correct interpretation of the constitution itself especially chapter 3 the theological qualification of a proposition has reference to the degree to the degree and kind of assent which it calls for on the part of the faithful with regard to the constitution on the church the question had been raised whether it defined any new dogmas for example that episcopal consecration is a sacrament or that the bishops are divinely constituted as a corporate body, college. The Theological Commission replied that, especially in view of the predominantly pastoral aims of Vatican II, the teachings of the Constitution were not to be regarded as infallible definitions, unless clearly and specifically proposed as such. The doctrinal pronouncements of this and other documents of Vatican II, since they come from the highest magisterial organ in the Church, should of course be accepted and believed, by Catholics with that religious assent, which is due to the official teaching authority. Compare this to what is said about this religious assent. Uh, what is said about this religious assent to the teaching of the individual bishops in Article 25. But nothing in the language of the Constitution on the Church indicates that the Council wished to propose its teaching in this document with the irrevoc irrevocable binding force proper to infallible definitions. On this question, see the teaching authority of Vatican II. Continuing now, the original purpose of this prefatory, prefatory note by the Theological Commission was to explain to the Council Fathers the reasons why certain proposed amendments, or modi, chapter 3, were handled as they were. But since the note throws valuable light on the proper understanding of the text itself, higher authority, presumably Pope Paul himself, directed that it should be published as an authentic norm of interpretation. All commentators agree that this note does not weaken or modify the teaching of chapter 3. Rather, it sets forth in more technical and juridical language how certain points in the text are to be understood. In particular, it clarifies the meaning of the term college. The manner by which one is made a member, the significance of the hierarchical communion, the relationship between the college collegial authority of the bishops and the primacy of the Pope. The precision with which these thorny points are here handled went far to remove the lingering doubt of some council fathers and thus to pave the way for the almost unanimous acceptance which the constitution on the church finally received. A little bit dry, a little bit laborious there, but I wanted to read that because uh, I, I, I made that highlight 
for a reason. It's because it deals with the interpretation. How do we how do we interpret this? Uh, what's doctrine? What's infallible? What's not infallible? And we have a means here that is uh, that has the endorsement of the Holy Father Pope Paul the Sixth. This note was endorsed by Paul the Sixth, and it was published at his uh, on his order. It was published with the documents of Vatican II, with that first document on the Constitution on the Church. But I don't want to dwell on that. A little bit technical. Let's continue with the next note. This note is a response by Albert Outler. And it reads as follows. I just made one highlight. To begin with, the notion of the church as mystery, in chapter one, is at once to lift the discussion above the level of institutional organization and management and to establish as the first premise of sound ecclesiology the reality of the church's divine origin, maintenance, and destiny. The church in history is, quote, human all too human, unquote, but her true dynamic, what accounts for her continuity through history and her effective witness in the world, lies beyond human manipulation or merit. To speak of the church as mystery is to confess God's constant sovereignty and to remind all Christians that we belong to the church. The church does not belong to us. It also implies that the whole church is mysteriously present in each local congregation, but that no congregation or denomination, for that matter, exhausts the fullness of the church Catholic. Interesting little comment. Uh, this too from Mr. Outler. This other comment here. Given the new ecumenical climate which has been generated by Vatican II and the guidelines for the ecumenical enterprise provided by on ecumenism and on religious liberty, two of the other 16 documents, it is obvious that all who dream of the healing of the sixth wound of Christ disunity, will have the dogmatic constitution on the church as a basic text for study, analysis, and negotiation. So it's a, it's a starting place for moving forward. That's the whole point of Vatican II. It's a pastoral council helping us move forward and to uh, inspire unity. Now we're going to look at the next writing on Revelation. So the first note I made is the important point is here made that biblical faith is far more than intellectual assent to propositions. It is a loyal adherence to a personal God. Okay, so uh, Saint Tom, I like to quote St. Thomas on this. He said, our faith uh, is not in propositions. Our faith is in the realities to which those propositions point. Ultimate reality, God himself. It's a revealed, it's a revealed religion, Christianity. It's a revealed religion, meaning that God himself uh, speaks to us. So it's not intellectual assent to propositions. It's a loyal adherence to a personal God. That's what religion is. That's what true religion is. Moving on to the next 
highlight. More precisely, Scripture contains revelation, namely in the form of a written record, but not all of Scripture is revelation. Much of it is the record of revelation's effects, of the human reactions to it, of men's faith or lack of it, lack of faith. Very important note here. All of Scripture is inspired, but not all is revealed. Similarly, tradition comes to include much that is only of human origin, however venerable and valuable. At the time of the Council of Trent, great difficulty was experienced in drawing a line between traditions which merely witnessed to ancient usages in the Church and those which represented the revelation of Christ. Considerable progress has been made since then by theologians and Church historians in clarifying the point, but not all, not all such questions are yet solved. Hence, the written record in the New Testament is vitally important, the permanent and unchanging testimony of the apostolic generation. The New Testament writings do not claim to be, in fact, they obviously are not, a complete and balanced inventory of the early church's beliefs. Nevertheless, they lay down what cannot be changed, the rule of faith as it was recorded, to which the church is always bound and which she can develop and expand but never falsify. On the other hand, a written record is a dead letter needing constant interpretation and commentary in succeeding ages. It cannot of itself answer new questions or explain what was once clear and has now become, become obscure. But the writings transmitted in a living community, a living community from one generation to the other, are accompanied by a continuous tradition of understanding and explanation, which preserves and re-expresses their meaning and which applies them from time to time to the solving of new problems. If this tradition were only human, it would be liable to grave error, but such a consequence is avoided by the church's magisterium, which, however much exposed to human vagaries and mistakes in secondary matters, is preserved from going wrong in essentials by the indwelling presence of Christ's Spirit. The Constitution especially emphasizes in Article 10 the coordination and interplay of Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. In whatever way the question of the separate values of the first two may be answered in theory, in practice all three function together and all are necessary for the church's life. This is an introduction by R.A.F. Mackenzie, Jesuit, Society of Jesus. Important to bear a note that this is not, uh, this is a human, this is a very human note. I think it contains much truth though. I agree with the emphasis that he's placing in his introduction. <clears throat> so now we're going to move on to the actual document itself, which is infallible because it's formally taught by the College of Bishops, together with their head, the Pope. Note number one of the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. This plan of revelation is realized by deeds and words having an inner unity. The deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest and confirm the teaching and realities signified by the words, while the words proclaim the deeds and clarify the mystery contained in them. By this revelation, then, the deepest truth about God and the salvation of man is made clear to us in Christ, who is the mediator and at the same time the fullness of all revelation. I want to read that again. This plan of revelation is realized by deeds and words having an inner unity. So there's a unity of the deeds and the words. The deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest and confirm the teaching 
and realities signified by the words, while the words proclaim the deeds and clarify the mystery contained in them. Very interesting way of phrasing that, the interplay between the deeds of God and the words, the word of God. Very, very interesting to meditate on that. I'll have to go back and chew on that. Another note here, the obedience of faith must be given to God who reveals an obedience which by me, <clears throat> the obedience of faith must be, I'll start over. The obedience of faith must be given to God who reveals an obedience by which man entrusts his whole self freely to God, offering the full submission of intellect and will to God who reveals and freely assenting to the truth revealed by him. If this faith is to be shown, the grace of God and the interior help of the Holy Spirit must proceed and assist, moving the heart and turning it to God, opening the eyes of the mind, and giving joy and ease to everyone in assenting to the truth and believing it. To bring about an ever deeper understanding of revelation, the same Holy Spirit constantly brings faith to completion by his gifts. Through divine revelation, God chose to show forth and communicate himself and the eternal decisions of his will regarding the salvation of men. That is to say, he chose to share those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. This sacred synod affirms, God, the beginning and end of all things, can be known with certainty from created reality by the light of human reason. But the synod teaches that it is through his revelation that those religious truths which are by their nature accessible to human reason can be known by all men with ease, with solid, with solid certitude, and with no trace of error, even in the present state of the human race. So, very, very powerful, uh, an affirmation of that dogma of the Church. It's a defide dogma of the Church uh, from Vatican I, I believe, that God could be known by the natural light of reason. His existence can be known by the light of natural reason without recourse to divine revelation. But revelation makes it more easily known, more certainly known, because not uh, to all men, because not everyone's going to sit down and study the philosophy, uh, which is not terribly complicated, but it's a little bit, you need a little bit of philosoph you need a philosophical inclination, if nothing else, if not... Uh, a bit of training in the basics of, of philosophy to grapple with some of the proofs of the existence of God. But with Revelation, it makes that certainty available easily and to all men. Moving on to my note in chapter 2 of this same, this same writing, the second writing on Revelation. This gospel had been promised in former times through the prophets and Christ himself, and Christ himself fulfilled it and promulgated it with his own lips. This commission was faithfully fulfilled by the apostles who, by their oral preaching, by example, and by ordinances, handed on what they had received from the lips of Christ, from living with him, and from what he did, or what they had learned through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The commission was fulfilled too by those apostles and apostolic men who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, committed the message, the message of salvation to writing. Many of our separated brethren have a hard time accepting that the Holy Spirit moved the apostles and the companions of the apostles, the apostolic men, to write what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write and uh, only what 
the Holy Spirit wanted them to write, and that they uh, that they were moved by Christ, by their contact with Christ, either direct contact or a, a contact that was removed uh, by one degree or by two degrees. And that proximity to the life of Christ gave them a certain oral tradition that they were able to hand on after public revelation was officially closed. And this is ongoing until today. If you're a Catholic, you should have no problem accepting that. Some of our separated brethren have a hard time understanding the role of tradition. Moving on now, through the same tradition, the church's full canon of the sacred books is known, and the sacred writings themselves are more profoundly understood and unceasingly made active in her. And thus God, who spoke of old, uninterruptedly converses with the bride of his beloved son, the church, and the Holy Spirit, through whom the living voice of the gospel resounds in the church and through her in the world, leads us to all leads unto all truth those who believe and makes the word of Christ dwell abundantly in them. So here we have this reference to the canon of scripture which depends on tradition. Very, very interesting stuff. I encourage everyone who considers themselves a Christian to look at the documents of Vatican II. We're going to consider, but that we're going to continue, but that's it for uh, this episode. Thanks for being with me. Take care. God bless. As little as one dollar per month, you can support the charitable mission of CVS, which has already enrolled hundreds of guests and patrons and their immediate families in the Scalabrini League of the Missionary Fathers of St. Charles Borromeo. By your generous support, you too participate in these benefits. A special Mass offered on each day of the year and the devotion and good works performed by the members of the society. Thank you for your generous support.